Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Irene Lee and May slash Margaret Lee. How are you doing? Doing great. Same here. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you here. And I came across your cookbook, I guess, Perfectly Good Food, in a New Yorker article and thought, huh, I'll reach out to them and then reached out. And then the next week you were in again. And this time it was a whole profile. <laughs> so like back to back, it was it was back to back weeks, right? It was. Yes. So congratulations on that. And then I spoke to Irene and, okay, there's a lot of cookbooks out there. I'm not particularly great. I, I don't dislike cookbooks, but I don't really follow them very well. I just like to play around. With Actually, most of my life, I would follow very simple recipes. But as I started getting more into CSAs, farmer's markets, getting rid of the fridge, unplug the apartment, it was really much more about what can I do with this thing here? And yeah, like your book, so it was like, it was talking about like what to do with weird vegetables. And it was like, we're talking about you, CSA kohlrabi. And I, <laughs> kohlrabi, I mean, CSA is where I found out about kohlrabi. And the rule was don't throw it out. And at first I was like, what is this thing? It doesn't have any flavor. And now I'm like, oh my God, I love kohlrabi. And anyway, so I was talking to Irene and what hit me was there was food, there was avoiding food waste, but man, it was fun, the conversation. And that's what I felt like Actually, your book talked about love as well and caring, and those are big parts of it. And I wanted to bring you guys on because it's really, I wanted to talk to people. What I wanted to learn from you guys, because you got a restaurant, you got they had the food truck, and you have all these startups and things like that. But it's fun. It's, I mean, it's, am I right? Like, is this one of the biggest parts of food for you? I mean, dumplings seem pretty fun too. Am I picking on the right thread here? Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. And I think that that's a big thing for us when writing the book is we wanted to make it feel achievable, that we wanted to make it, we wanted to acknowledge that this is a challenge that pretty much everybody has and we're not perfect about it and nobody is, but that cooking the food you have should be doable and it should be fun and it shouldn't be taken so seriously that, you know, it stresses you out. We want cooking to be something that more people turn to and cooking the food they have, especially. So that was May or Margaret or, and Irene. Was, what about you? I love May's tone when it comes to these conversations. She started her blog, Food Waste Feast, a couple of years ago. And I think even the name of that speaks to having a sense of humor. Like, we can turn scraps into dinner, no problem. And... Also, if you know May, she's not amazing at following recipes either. So truth. <laughs> <laughs> I think that she just brings this incredibly relatable sense of, yeah, we all want to do a little better. We get too excited at the grocery store and like, let's figure out how to solve this problem together, which I just think, as you said, is like an incredibly constructive and motivating way to get people interested in this. And, you know, we all know a humorless environmentalist, or we may be one in my case, <laughs> but I think that fun is how you convince anyone to do anything. So that is exactly what our goal was with this book. Now, you mentioned getting carried away at the supermarket, and that makes me want to, let's put, if we get to it later, about how supermarkets are designed to, it's not just we're getting lost. I mean, we live in a world of, of doof. Uh, oh, that was another thing I loved. That when we spoke, you were using the word doof. And I was like, oh, yes, because uh, I think it's a life-changing term. If we get to talk about how we live in systems that are designed to really addict us and catch us 
But also, I want to go back to your. I jumped right into the the current book, which I guess came out last month, a couple months ago. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh, thanks. Yes, it was June twentieth. And so, two months ago, a month and a half ago, and can you talk about opening the food truck? What I, the earliest I know about is opening the food truck, and then there's a pandemic. Then there's restaurants and there's all sorts of other projects that you've worked on helping other restaurants. Could you walk us through some of that? Sure. So we started the food truck 11 years ago with our big brother. May May means little sister in Mandarin. And so it was his idea to open the food truck, but we quickly uh, strong armed him into naming the business after us. And <laughs> I think that when we opened, we were really just curious about what it would be like to run a food business together. And to do it with our own point of view, which was really about working with local farms, eating meat from animals raised on pasture, and sharing our kind of Chinese-American perspective on food. And then in the intervening years, we've opened different businesses. We've written these two cookbooks, and now we run a dumpling factory here in South Boston. We produce about 40,000 dumplings every single week, and those go out to farmers markets all over Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And we also do a lot of community work, anti-hunger work, work supporting other small restaurant businesses who don't have access to the resources that we have been fortunate to have access to. And so I think that all of this, the kind of thread that ties it all together is wanting to make food a force for good. And for connection and for positivity. And of course, you know, in our food system, food can be a vector for all kinds of bad things. So for us, really, it's like, how do we make food good? I want to ask about all of these things. I'm, I'm going to jump into the, you called it a dumpling factory. I think it's also a restaurant because it looks like, I mean, I saw you describe it as a, uh, like a, how brew pubs were a while ago. And now that's kind of normal. And maybe not brew pub, but like, a place where you can get the beer and you can see it being brewed and you can see people making the dumplings. So I haven't been there. It's in Boston. Is it, it's both a restaurant and you can see through to making them dumplings? Yes. So we call it a factory cafe and classroom, which is kind of a mouthful, but essentially it's all aspects of dumplings happen in this space. So you can come and order them to eat hot and fresh right away. You can buy them to take home. You can come learn how to make them, or you can watch us make them, or any combination <laughs> of the above. How many different types of dumplings? I haven't seen the menu. What's your favorite? Right now, I think we have four or five dumplings on the menu. And one of my favorites currently is we're having um, a sort of sad peach season in the Northeast. But we were able to connect with a farmer who got us some peaches from the East Coast. And we are making these coconut sticky rice peach dumplings. And I love this product, not just because it's delicious. It's like kind of based on, you know, that amazing Thai dessert of sticky rice with mango. But also, I was such a hater about the idea of dessert dumplings. And I was proved completely wrong by my team. And so <laughs> it's just... Uh, a fantastic kind of innovation of this group of folks who we work with, who really think about the business like owners and managers and who have these incredible ideas. I'm sorry. I missed everything after the part you said about the sticky rice with peaches because I want to go to Boston right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They are pretty delicious. <laughs> oh, my God. This is I never would have dreamed of this. And now 
Uh, I'm sorry, I can't pay attention to anything else. <laughs> tell me, can you tell us about another dumpling then? One of my other favorite dumplings is our cumin lamb. So lamb dumplings are kind of less common um, in in China and across the world, I think. But we took the sort of Western Chinese and like Uyghur flavor profile of cumin, peppercorn and chili flake with lamb. And we just ground it all up and put it in a dumpling. So it has like a super savory element to it, kind of umami rich. And we buy our lamb from this farm called the Black Eyed Susan Dairy. And she's someone who we met at a farmer's market. So you know, that kind of connection where you're looking at each other from across the market at your different stands. And she walks over and says, hey, do you guys need any lamb? And we're like, yeah, that's great. And then when we go back to the market, we can sort of cross promote her and feature her and really underscore the connectivity that I think is so amazing about local and regional food systems. That reminds me when I first started composting. And so in New York City, that meant freezing my food and taking it to the farmer's market in Union Square. Although now I realize I don't have to freeze it because my freezer's unplugged. But I found that every now and then I'm dropping stuff off and someone else is dropping stuff off. And here's what I learned. If I start a conversation with someone there, it's always a delightful conversation. Totally. We're both people who've walked like a mile to drop off food and we can see what we've been eating. And I love this. Also, during the pandemic, I got to share the story. During the pandemic, when my CSA started bagging every single item separately, and it was like full of plastic. And I asked the people, the volunteers at the at where I pick up, can I avoid this plastic? They're like, you got to talk to the farm. And I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess I do. And they're like, oh, don't do that. And people are like, don't do that because it's enough trouble. They have enough trouble as it is. Uh, but I knew from experience what happened. I, I emailed the farm and said, is there a way to avoid this? And the guy contacted me and said, thank you. We only get complaints, but you're not complaining. You're saying, hey, can you help? And so- we ended up figuring, like I said, look, if everything wilts and everything is destroyed, I will not complain. Can I get it without the bags? And so the next time when I came to the CSA to pick up my stuff, I go and the volunteer looks down and says, oh, Josh, you're, uh, you're the no plastic one. And the other person who was there is like, I want no plastic. <laughs> so Amazing. on the other side of avoiding waste, on the other side of sustainability is always more people and community. I totally agree with that. And one of those things that's been really cool about our book events is that we'll talk about tips and tricks for like different vegetables or fruits. And then people in the audience will also start raising their hands and be like, oh, yeah, like I have a great tip about this. And there's such an energy around sharing, sharing information, comparing notes. And like on the other side of the food and restaurant world, you don't always see that. Sometimes there's secrecy about recipes or sources. But on this side, it's like everybody wants to tell everybody about the great thing they figured out. Yeah, I wanted to ask a story about, it felt like things that a lot of people throw away, and you probably threw away or composted. At some point, you there must be stories around saving something. You're like, that's how to save garlic or that's how to save eggplant or something like that. Any stories of like, seeing something that you thought was too far gone or salvaged or figuring out how to make a hero recipe. <laughs> yes. And actually back to sharing uh, tips at the farmer's market, we got a tip from our friend who learned it from her spinach farmer at the farmer's market about freezing raw spinach, which is something I had never thought of before. And I kind of thought you always had to blanch a vegetable before you put it in the freezer. And 
Instead, you just take the spinach, which I think is a leafy green, is something that people often buy because they want to eat more greens and then don't get to because they have, you know, a busy night ahead or they're eating out or something and it lingers in the fridge for ages. And if that ever happens, you can just stick it directly into the freezer and you don't want to eat it in a salad after that. But for my kids who will not touch spinach in their everyday life, but if I put it into a smoothie, then all of a sudden they will eat all the spinach and it's already frozen and you can just, you know, crumble it right into the blender or into a pan. Yeah, spinach is always like, I have to eat that right away because it goes bad so fast. Yes. And another tip we suggest is if that's happening to you, then you put a dish towel or a paper towel inside the container of spinach and it helps soak up any uh, excess moisture that would cause it to sort of wilt extra fast. So it puts a, a dry one. A dry one. Mm -hmm. So it absorbs. Exactly. All right. I need more tips. I'm selfish here. <laughs> We've got so many. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I got some giant eggplants right now. And if I don't cut them, they stay fresh for a long, long time. Once I cut them, I either have to eat the whole thing and it's just me. So what if I, if I chop half an eggplant, I try and put a little salt on him to kind of let him ferment. And that kind of worked, but it, is it, what can I do with an eggplant? That is to, if I've eaten half the eggplant, but the other half is just sitting there. So I totally feel you about eggplants because you can't, it's hard to eat just part of it. And so my method is to pop the whole eggplant into a hot oven and then it kind of cooks down into a more manageable portion. <laughs> and so you've got this kind of smoky, delicious eggplant. If you just pierce it a couple times, then put it in a really hot oven for, I don't know, 40 minutes. It's, we've got more details in the cookbook that I obviously don't have in my brain, but, um, then you can freeze it once it's pureed and it's cooked. You can make some into, you know, a delicious dip or you can put it on a sandwich and then you can just pop the rest into the freezer. And then you've got these kind of individual portions of eggplant for doing whatever you like with it. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's a pretty spongy thing. So it ends up getting smaller. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, because Josh, we know that you don't have a freezer. In the absence of, you know, different kitchen tools, I think in general, one of the tenets of the book is that transforming food textures and being willing to consume, you know, different formats of a given ingredient gives you so much flexibility. So maybe you roast or saute half of the eggplant and then you puree the other half. And then that puree can oh. quickly become a sauce or a mm -hmm. dip. And, you know, we have recipes for sauteed lettuce and stir fried cucumbers and kind of all of these ideas that you know, a cucumber should always be crisp. We want to help people break out of that. And then I think it gives you just so many more tools at your disposal to use it up. Why did I record this before eating breakfast? I'm super hungry and <laughs> you guys are not helping me at all. I didn't think of puree. This is like so obvious. I, Yeah, this is really fun. I don't know if people listening at home are picking up on this. Also, when I, when I spoke to Irene last time, you talked about koji, which I never heard of before. I mean, I guess I'd heard of in passing, but I hadn't really thought of. So fermenting has is, is become really big for me and I haven't gotten any koji. So now I've looked it up. And so koji is like a particular strain of, I don't know what it is. Uh, aspergillus. What? Aspergillus. Aspergillus. So it <laughs> ferments, it's like used in Japan in the East of making 
it looks like it goes into a lot of meat stuff, but also into sake. And how do I get it? Is it like, do I got to, is it like in the air there? Or is it like, like my mom has her starters for sourdough that, and I got my kombucha stuff that I keep going for a long time. Is it like that? Or is it, do you buy it? So you can culture your own and that does involve cooking rice and then monitoring its temperature and humidity very carefully. So the rice grows the aspergillus oryzae, and then you use that rice to inoculate your soybeans for soy sauce or for natto or to create a marinade for your steak. But thankfully, you can also buy it at some specialty food stores or you can mail order it. Often it will come as like a slurry or a paste or it might be dehydrated. But, you know, historically, naturally, it comes from cooking your rice and then letting the rice grow this incredibly powerful and cool mold. So there's Japanese stores near me, so they'll probably have it. They might, yeah. I would ask around. And if you can't find any to buy, I highly recommend the book Koji Alchemy, which is by our friend Rich Shi, who is kind of a fermentation genius. And the book is actually illustrated by our friend who helped us open Maymay 10 years ago, Max Hall. So there are all these connections, and Rich in particular is just all about building community. He's traveled all over the country to teach chefs about how to use Koji. And he never shows up empty-handed, right? He's always got some crazy ferment that he's, you know, he lost in the fridge five years ago, and now he wants to try. <laughs> so I think that that's another great example of of the kind of sharing that comes out of building these communities and, and solving yeah. these problems with often like very ancient techniques. Yeah, and I have to, I got to share with people because everyone always, if I start talking about, say, fermentation, Okay, if before I fermented anything, someone talked fermentation. I'm like, I don't know what that is. That sounds kind of complicated. And it's, I don't know when this shift came, happened. I, can, I mean, I guess the easiest thing was, I think I started with sauerkraut. And I had to, I was like, really recipe thinking, I better follow it exactly right and get to just the, like, do I, I got to weigh this stuff and weigh the, the salt and get it just right so that I don't like create some biological monster. And then the best time I ever made it, I was like in a hurry. And I just threw some salt on. I didn't measure it. And it was like the best tasting sauerkraut. And now it's fun. Like I'm just, I realize the symbiotic stuff wins out, I guess. And so I'm mm -hmm. always trying something new. And so I hope listeners are getting that if you're like I was, and it sounds all oh, that's complicated, on the other side of it, it's fun and playful. I don't know. Somehow I feel connected to my distant ancestors from thousands and thousands of years ago. And so- to hear about Koji, I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but I want to find out. And like the way you're talking about it, you're not saying like, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's like, go in this direction. And that's really fun to me. Yeah. One thing I will say is that in our book, we don't really talk about fermentation because it is such a deep category. And also, I think we are two people who are a little bit intimidated by fermentation. Yep. Second that. So we've introduced a set of kind of food waste solving techniques that don't involve that. But there are so many incredible experts who we love and respect. One of the people who we met on our book tour was Helena from, she used to own um, a restaurant called Larder in Baltimore. And now she helps run the fermentation school. 
which is based out of Vermont, I believe. And so there is all this kind of symbiosis between these different communities. But we're not the experts on that. And we we leave it for the most part, I would say, to the experts, unless we've accidentally fermented something in our fridge or on our counter. <laughs> yeah. An accidental fermentation. I'm personally a quick pickles fan because then I don't need to stress about it so much. So they just live in the fridge. Don't have to worry about it. And it just means that, you know, I've saved a little something by turning it into a quick pickle and then I can pull it out of the fridge pretty quickly and then use on all sorts of other dishes. And when Irene and I spoke before, you guys are going to be in New York probably next month. And I hope that we get to share some of the stuff in person, which is, sorry, listeners, you don't, you're not there, but it's one of the great things about podcasting is you get to meet some of these people in person. And I look yeah. forward to some of that. Oh, and also my mom is getting a book. Well, I hope you don't mind she's getting from the library. But I mentioned our conversation and she's, so I have a feeling I'm going to hear being, she likes to go through, like, she really loves exploring these things. And that's a lot of what I've shared more with her. That's the other thing. You know, we talk about community and connection and family is the other big piece of it is uh-huh. gardening that when I was a kid, I was just like, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> totally. And now, but now it's like my sister's garden out in Queens is really fantastic. And she gives me things to plant, uh, not saplings, what do you call it? When, you, when it does, she puts it in water and I bring it home and I stick it in the ground or in a, in a pot clippings and yeah it's there's so much connection and the flip side is this isolation that I grew up with everything's I don't know sorry if if I'm getting uh, speechless but I feel like like it's really easy to go into a rabbit hole of how our world is so isolated and how Mm. we used to you know I took a foraging tour of it's this guy who gives foraging. He's been giving foraging tours since the 80s in New wow. York. And we walk in. I, at this particular one is Prospect Park, but he does it with all the different parks. We were not 10 feet into the park. And he's like, here's a bunch of stuff that's edible. I'm like, what? And there's edible stuff all over the place. And the Prospect Park is far from untouched nature. It's, you know, it's pretty manufactured. And even there, there's tons of stuff. And it, and I'm, you know, far from an indigenous person, but people sometimes, I hear some people say, nature's trying to kill you all the time. We have to, like, it's dangerous out there. It's not some virus. It's it's like a tiger or a bear. <laughs> but the, the people I've had on the podcast who have lived among, who have lived for years among indigenous cultures in, in various places around the world. They say they view it as nurturing, nurturing and warm and, and comfortable and abundant. And this tiny little hint that it could be and it would and it can be. It's such a like I'm I'm barely stepping in that direction. And what I see is clearly something I've been missing so much. Hey. Have I been waxing too much on this? Is it <laughs> is there something parallel in your journeys? Yeah, I think that for me. I don't know if I mentioned this when we spoke before, Josh, but our mom is a real character. And among many other things, she grows shiitake mushrooms in New Hampshire on this little property that our family owns. And she, I think, you know, she's not outdoorsy per se. Like we didn't really go camping or anything like that, but it's been very cool to watch her who kind of grew up in like the microwave dinner era, who she's an MD, 
who's kind of an indoor cat, get really into the idea of growing something out of, you know, a log using mold, using spore and spawn. And, And so she hosts these inoculation events. You know, we have inoculation day. It's not that far away from evacuation day, actually, but... We bring all these people up to New Hampshire and we all inoculate these logs. And it's like, I mean, I have to say it's the social event of the spring for me and also for, I think, many other people. And I think that like watching someone in her 70s connect with nature in a new way, that kind of has the same magic to it that I hear you talking about. And I think that May and I have our own relationships to nature. And, you know, if nature is trying to kill us, we probably earned it probably deserve it but i feel like there's always a way in to that conversation for people and like it doesn't matter how old you are or what kind of work you do or how much money you have like that's one of the things that i think is is just really special about these kinds of conversations another piece of it it seems like you guys that you do a lot to help local restaurants local food organizations so that's another piece of community is there's a lot of people who don't have access to things that other people do. And I feel like you're trying to fix that. What's the motivation there? What are some stories that have come out of that, if you don't mind sharing? I think the motivation is twofold. One is that our grandparents, when they immigrated to the U.S., they opened restaurants, kind of the classic immigrant story. They didn't have a lot of other options. And we went into restaurants and food for the love and the passion um, and the self-actualization of it all, which, you know, rest in peace to our grandparents. They probably would not have been thrilled if we were running just another crummy restaurant. And so supporting folks who have less access to resources than we do, I think, is one of the ways that we honor their legacy and their journey to create a life for their family in this country out of the incredible and difficult task of restaurant work. And then the other thing is, selfishly, like if I live to be 90 and my only lunch options are sweet green and chipotle, like I'm going to be really pissed. (laughs) So can you imagine tiny little old Irene? And so the future where there are no independent restaurants where food is all homogenous, that scares the shit out of me. And so that's another reason why connecting businesses to resources is so important, thinking about this broader ecosystem. And especially because of COVID, I think I made my peace with Maymay, our business, being a single entity. And like, I was sad to close Maymay during COVID. I'm thrilled that we're open now. But like, when I think about 10 years down the line, if Maymay is gone, I think that's too bad for me, for our community. But if there are no Maymays, broadly speaking, you know, figuratively speaking, if there are no independent restaurants that were started by someone with a passion and a need, then that is really upsetting to me, I guess. And so it's not about us. It's about all of us. And I think that's part of What was the most fun about running the food business? Even going all the way back to the days of the food truck, May, you could probably share some stories about the ways that we were supported and found collaborators in like unexpected places. And that was immediately, again, to talk about fun, like one of the most fun and kind of surprising parts of starting the business. 
Yeah, we got to run pop-up dinners in established restaurants. And, you know, we had groups of food trucks getting together and opening up for lunch somewhere new. And I think at that time, it was the idea of sort of a gourmet food truck was just popping up into the sort of urban mindset. And the fact that we could serve something that people hadn't seen before, and you could pop out of your office building and grab it for lunch on the street corner for 10 bucks. That was a big deal. And there was such a community that sprang up there uh, that we still keep in touch with today. And it's been amazing to see and support the idea of independent food businesses coming in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, it's exactly as Irene said, that makes life all the richer. It makes lunch better. <laughs> so those all all the kinds of things we support and, you know, want to see around when we're old. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing the fun to this. And also that I'm so tired of people saying, I eat a sweet cream. That's like, that's the holistic one. And I'm like, it's, there's something missing there. It's uh, <laughs> a sweet cream every so often is, is fine. But if that was your only option all the time, it'd be so sad. Yeah. It's like, it's, that's the, the green option among the nationwide chains. And I'm sure the people who started were lovely people. And one of the things that kills me about it is that I, I pick up litter all the time and everyone's like, oh, it's compostable. They're bowls. Right. And I'm picking up so many, I'm air quotes here, compostable bowls. Right. And it's not. And it's still litter all over the place. And like, so I'm glad that you have this perspective of like, let's get a ecosystem of small businesses and, and local places and and have more fun. Yeah, definitely. One picture that pops up on my phone every year that I love is it's a photo of us and a guy who ran a grilled cheese truck, a very famous grilled cheese truck locally, and a couple of his team members. And we're all holding shovels because the year we opened the food truck, we had record snowfall in Boston. And the way that the food truck parking spots work here is that you rotate. And so it's like, okay, if we don't all get out here and shovel... None of us can do business. And so the collective spirit of all of us just figuring out how to shovel three huge parking spots and then the feeling of like triumph uh, <laughs> when we were able to actually park the truck and open our doors. I love having that reminder every year. And I think that, I don't know, there's just something about that. Like we worked really hard and we cooked and prepped a lot of food. But the things that I really remember are like those cool moments where we get to be connected to other people. You know, you're describing this fun. It sounds fun. As you, like there's a story and there's the actual happening. And I suspect that when it was happening, it was, oh, uh, we got to <laughs> do this. And I guess that does have a fair amount of like you save something and 10 things that you do 10 times wrong and then you get it right. And then all those 10 times are like horrible. And it's worth it. Totally. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we've really enjoyed in terms of feedback for the book is really how satisfying it is when you think you have nothing in the fridge and you manage to create something from what you had that, you, you know, there's a, a little wrinkly lemon and you had some, you know, broccoli that was kind of old looking and this other thing in its last life, but you put it together and you made dinner and people are like, oh my gosh, I'm so smart. Look at what I did. And we really want to be, we want to empower cooks to have that confidence and that level of satisfaction. 
I think one of the goals of the book absolutely is to help people cut down on their food waste and it's important for the climate and it helps out your grocery bill. But really what hits home to us is that level of of accomplishment and satisfaction that people feel when they've managed to put something together with maybe a little help from us, but mostly we've given them the tools and some structure to put that together themselves. Yeah, I feel like this is, it's like a perspective, a life life shift, a mindset shift. And this is like the the scaffolding to get you there, to build that to the new structure. But it's not like, you know, there's no finger wagging. Yes, that's definitely something that we tried to go for because, you know, most people, especially people who have that idea of they want to cut down on their food waste, it's easy enough to beat yourself up about it and think like, oh, I didn't get to this in time or I didn't get to that in time. And we don't want to add to that. We want to help you figure out how to use it up and give you some suggestions or some tools or, you know, as Irene was saying, connect you with someone else who can give you some ideas. And just sometimes that idea of, Irene, and you have actually both mentioned like, oh, I could puree this or, hey, I didn't know I could freeze that. Or, you know what? I'm really used to always buying a certain item and cooking it in a certain way. But, you know, there are so many other ways to use it that we often don't think of, especially if we're tied to cooking one type of cuisine or we always grew up eating a vegetable in a certain And I love that, you know, I can't get my mind off this uh, peach sticky rice. And it started off, the first thing you said was it was a poor peach season. Yeah. That's... Ironic. I mean, you know, you think poor peach season means okay, no peaches. Totally. And on the contrary, it's it's a <laughs> Josh can't think about anything else for an hour or two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that you know, a theme that comes up for us a lot is that like many of the best culinary kind of traditions and innovations come from scarcity, and we talk about this a lot at our book events that like. Zero waste cooking in most parts of the world in most times in history is just cooking. Like that's how people cook, right? Because you can't always go to the grocery store or, you know, pull things out of your freezer depending on when and where you live. And one of the kind of core values of Maymay, as well as I think of this book, is like the abundance mindset or the generosity mindset, which is like, how do you take what looks like nothing and turn it into something? And then how great does it feel to do that? So we don't have any peaches. Okay, like we can't make peach pie dumplings, but let's see if we can find enough peaches to do something that has peaches in it and then create, you know, by accident, this dumpling that now, you know, we're probably going to make blueberry sticky rice dumplings and apple sticky rice. Like it's going to kind of snowball. Exactly. And so I think that contrast of like, crap, there's no peaches. And then like, okay, well, we have to come up with something. That was often like the vibe on the food truck every day, you know, like, okay, we sold out, we have to figure something out. And the figuring something out, I think, is is what the book is all about. And taking what feels like nothing or what feels like trash or scraps and saying, okay, I think I think there might be something here. Blueberry dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This is so, yeah. so I have to get to Boston. Also, I'm very curious also to hear how when you connect with the the graduate of my online or my workshops to see because this mindset shift and I can't wait to see what happens when you guys get together if you haven't gotten together already. More community. Yes. Yeah. And Josh, I think you need to meet our mom and go shiitake mushroom inoculating. That sounds like another important community event for you to be a part of. Yeah. I was at a store at a thrift store near here and they were selling inoculated logs 
but they're 25 bucks a pop. And I was like, that seems a little high for a log. And <laughs> with thrift stores, it keeps working out. Like if I wait long enough, something ends up being available free or really, I don't know. So I would love to inoculate some logs. Awesome. And get some, like, I think I know where I'd put that. Anyway, yeah, I've, I've been thinking <laughs> about growing mushrooms for a while. Someone who listens to my podcast gave me her, it didn't work out, but I'm looking over there at the, it was a thing that I was supposed to spray and it was too cold. I don't think that, anyway, it didn't work out for making mushrooms, but now I really want to do it. Open invitation. Awesome. So how do I get to Vermont? Well, anyway, let's switch over to the Spotify method. And I, I've been trying to switch over, but I couldn't stop continuing the conversation. Can I do just Irene and instead of both of you? Because to the listeners, before we started, I was going to do both of them or one. And just for time, I think I'll try to do one. And may maybe next time. Sounds great. I'm excited to hear what Irene says too. Irene, is the environment something that matters to you? I think I know the answer to this question. Yes, it is. So for a lot of people, when they think about the environment, it's different depending on where they grew up and what they're what they value and things like that. When you think of the environment, like if, if you think of a quintessential moment in your life when you were in nature, no motors, no burning fossil fuels, just you, maybe just you, maybe you and a few others, does anything come, come to mind? Well, one thing that comes to mind, Josh, is the time I was stalked by a raccoon for three days <laughs> while on a solo camping trip in the Green Mountains of Vermont. But aside from that, I think that when I think about my experiences with nature, and maybe this is cheating on the method, but I think about the time that I spent living on Vermont in a farm and sitting at the dinner table and looking around at the eight or 10 people who I was with and realizing that pretty much everything on the table we had cooked or raised or harvested or sown ourselves. And that we spent our days in nature, you know, farming and doing chores. And then we all convened around the literal and figurative fruits of our labor. And that was the best meal maybe I've ever eaten. Um, and so for me, I think like part of the relationship to nature is that it makes it, it infuses everything, especially the food, with a little bit of extra magic when you have that relationship to it. So that's what I think of. And, you know, that's probably pretty like anthropocentric uh, relative to maybe some of the guests that you have on this show. But for me, it was like, wow, like our contribution to this food through interacting with nature and being outside is what made this food like taste so damn good. It reminds me of my phrase, Home cooked tastes better even when it tastes worse. Yes, absolutely. And so I'm curious, either at the table when you looked around or maybe the time when you're actually out outdoors and planting or foraging or whatever, what were, what was like the sensory experience? What were the sights? What did you see and smell and touch and taste and hear? One thing I remember is we had asparagus. This was the spring of 2007. And as you probably know, asparagus loses most of its flavor within the first like six or 10 hours when you pick it. And so one thing that I remember very clearly is like the snap of harvesting a stalk of asparagus. And then the flavor 
when you take a bite of literally just picked asparagus, which is like the flavor of asparagus turned up to a hundred and, uh, you know, sent to heaven. So those are two things that I really remember. I also remember gathering eggs, which is kind of a dirty <laughs> job, um, but also so satisfying to gather eggs and to fill up, you know, your little flat of like five by six and taking them into the kitchen, washing them. And I don't know, just like marveling that like, that's where all food comes from. Like every food is picked and cleaned. And when we go to grocery stores, we take it for granted that it just like, does it, does it grow in the box? Like we, we don't know, or we're not thinking about it. And so the idea that Wow, actually, like every stock of asparagus that I've ever eaten was picked. Maybe not by hand. I'm sure that's all mechanized, but it was picked at some point. And that was just kind of like a, a real sort of brain teaser for me to think about when I went back to Boston and kind of ate from our food system the way the average person does. So you're out there. I'm picturing you with the asparagus growing and you're picking it. The snap of like, could you literally hear the snap? Oh, yeah. It's the best part. And the smell, what do you smell out there? Could you smell the asparagus? You can smell the asparagus, but you can also smell the dirt because the sun, the sun's coming up and you pick in the morning typically, and the dirt is just starting to like warm up. And especially after a winter in Vermont, <laughs> there's a very powerful feeling to having sunshine and, and smelling what is essentially, I think, just warm dirt. But that is like a pretty cool, a pretty cool feeling. And then, you know, filling up a basket and feeling again, like May was saying, like, wow, I'm awesome. <laughs> like, look what I did, even though, you know, many, many hands went into creating that food. Yeah. Can you name some of the motions that you felt, say, with the sun coming up, filling that basket? Yeah. I think I felt proud. Like, wow, look at this. This is amazing. And not just of myself, but also I think of the collective. I probably felt hungry because I just, you know, I'm always thinking about, okay, how are we going to cook and eat this? I think I probably felt sad that every piece of asparagus I had ever tasted was such a distant <laughs> comparison to this incredible thing that just grew out of the ground. And I think I felt that, I don't know, like that little tingly, I keep saying magic, but like that, that sensation of like, just wonder or awe, I think I also experienced. So wonder, awe, pride, hunger. I wonder if, all right, I invite you to think of something to do that you could do in your regular life. It could be one time, could be many times to act on those feelings, to manifest them without having to go all the way to Vermont or farm in something around you. And if you gain for it with three constraints that have come up over time, something that you weren't already going to do, so new, something that you do yourself, because I work with all these leaders who are like, oh, I'll get a team to do it for yourself to do. And something that it has to have a physical component. So not just watching a, a documentary or reading a book, and so that the impact that you have doesn't have to be measured, but it's just non-zero. You have to you have to have some sense of I left it better than I found it. Hey. And 
something I didn't say that almost everyone hears or everyone expects is I'm not saying what's something you can do to fix the environment. It's not to fix anything. That may be a nice side effect, but it's to bring about that feeling, you know, the wonder, the awe, maybe the hunger. And you know, of course, it won't be exactly the same. Of course, it might be bigger. Who knows? But want to give it a shot? Yeah. Well, as you started talking, I was like thinking about my kitchen and kind of like in my mind's eye, looking around my kitchen for the opportunities. And of course, the kitchen is the place I'm, I'm thinking of. But one of the things that I that occurred to me is that, you know, every time I cook bacon, I get this really great bacon. And so I can't bear to throw out any of the grease. Um, and so I have a couple containers of bacon grease on my counter. And often when I cook meat, you know, there's a lot of rendered fat that comes off of it. And I do my best to use it up. But one of the things I've always thought about doing is making like soap and candles out of animal fat. And I would really, I think, like to try that. And that is a little bit of a departure for me because normally I'm thinking about how to turn it into more food and not into some other resource. But yeah, I don't know mm -hmm. if that uh, fits the brief. It just is the thing that occurred to me almost right away. So I guess it's been on my mind. But I feel like that would be pretty cool because I love expensive candles. So the feeling of making my own candle um, or like, you know, fancy scented soap or whatever feels like it would be something I would be proud of. Mm -hmm. And then I can also imagine like every time I use the soap, I would be like, this will be a jar <laughs> on my countertop. And now look at me. So, yeah, that's what's kind of bubbling up for me as we talk. Well, it certainly fits the bill. I mean, it's it's something you do yourself with your hands that you weren't already doing. Does it leave the world better than you found it in some way? Does it leave? It, I think it probably indirectly is the best I could do with that. It would help me waste less. Um, it would allow me to make use of more of the resources or like byproduct that I produce. It would leave things cleaner than I found them, perhaps. But yeah, I don't know that there's like a, a straight line to be drawn between impact, except that I tend to think that anything that brings more intention to how we use resources has to have a, a positive, if very indirect impact kind of down the road. Well, it seems to me also that if you were going to buy soap and you don't buy soap, because you use something that, that that would seem to fit the bill too. Yeah. And it's also, it's, it's common. Every now and then when I ask someone, it takes like this 20 minutes of back and forth of like trying to figure out, especially if they really hung up on, if I do something related to the environment, it must involve deprivation and sacrifice. It must be suffering. Right. And sometimes people are really stuck in there. And, but then sometimes people have this, oh, I've been meaning to do this for a while. And I love that. Yeah. Because usually what was holding them back is just they just hadn't gotten around to it and they know that they're going to like it. And you might not like it. Maybe for all I know, it'll be a terrible experience. But would you be game to come back and share what that experience was like? Totally. Okay. So about how long from now would we have to, like for you to do it and to be able to, if I say, how did it go, that you have a meaningful answer? 
or, or before you answer, if we do see each other in New York, could we have the second conversation then and record in person? I'm dying to say yes, but I don't think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I probably need a, a few weeks on this. But in a week when I see you, if we're able to connect, I can certainly provide an update on the timeline. I feel like there are some questions I have about the ingredients I need and like how dangerous is lie um, <laughs> and stuff like that, that that will help me um, narrow on my timeline. Okay. So after we record, but before we hang up, let's schedule a second conversation. Okay. Sounds good. And I have to share, a, this is wonderful movie I saw about the sun, the Bushmen in Southern Africa called The Great Dance. And they're hunting. And, you know, one of the things is the persistence hunting. But when they capture the animal, they're like a day away from or a, a several days walk away from where they go. And so they have to eat some of it right there. And then, of course, they also treat it in some way so that it doesn't go bad, doesn't get eaten right away from predators and things. But one of the things they do is they take the fat and they rub it all over their skin. And I was like, what's going on there? I didn't quite catch it. And then, but that's what you're talking about. You're, you're going to be doing what they do. Yes. <laughs> All right. Irene, are you going to smell like bacon? I don't know. That seems like a great outcome. We're going to have, I'm excited to find out how this turns out. And, uh, you know, I didn't ask about this James Beard Award and the James Beard Leadership Award. Was that a big surprise? Did you did you know it was coming? What was it like when you got it? It wasn't a surprise because I will be totally honest and say that I nominated the crap out of myself for it. And I uh, harangued a lot of people to also nominate me. I was not always comfortable with self-promotion, but I have evolved. And... It was still surreal to get the phone call. And the best part of it was connecting with the other honorees who I'm still in touch with, you know, on a very regular basis, many of whom are, are in New England or in New York. And I don't know, I have mixed feelings about how awards and PR work. Good. But I have accepted that that is part of the world that I inhabit at the very least. And so it was a great feeling. And we'll see what else happens, essentially. I'm, I suspect that we'll submit this book for an award consideration next year. And I don't know, prestige is as prestige does. Um, but it's great to be part of a community. And that's been what the award has kind of unlocked for me and for for my business. You're describing your evolving relationship with self promotion. You didn't mention it along the way, and I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't bring it up because I'm I'm inclined to put in the title of the post on the blog on the podcast. So because people, you know, change their leadership award, it's like that's going to attract eyes. And it feels to me like it's a you have a mission, maybe several missions, and this strengthens the platform and gives you a broader voice to expand the mission and, and get the the word and practices out. Is that what it helps you with? Yeah, I think so. And I I have friends and colleagues who express the same feelings that I used to have that we kind of wish we were in a world where 
you could toil in relative obscurity and the quality of your product would speak for itself. And and that does sound nice. And it's also not where we are right now, in my opinion. And so I do have like a, a competitive spirit. And I think part of me just felt like, okay, like if that's the game, we're just, we're going to win. <laughs> and then we're going to use winning as a, a point of leverage to do more. And I do remember like way, way in the beginning of, of the business when I felt like, I don't care about awards. Like awards don't actually mean anything. And they they mean as much as you allow them to. And so if you decide to double down and invest in building that part of the business, I think there's a lot of, of payoff to be had. Well, I'm just thinking if it leads to me getting more peach and blueberry <laughs> dumplings, I don't want to sound like a one trick, like too hung up on this but oh <laughs> and also it tells me that if my idea with dumplings like that's just it's so far from what i would have expected that i can't think of what like what more especially when you're just having fun with it like what more is going to come and if i so now i have to get to boston and go to Mamey's. yeah and and just I mean, the lab I won't go for vegan but the, I mean I'm sure that there's like other things that like I'm I'll be like mind blown we have some nice vegan options. And I think, again, like my favorite part about that dumpling is that it happened because in large part, I decided to let go and say, yeah, give it a shot. Even though I think I don't like this idea and I don't think I'll like the product. And I was wrong. I love to be wrong. And I love to be wrong when my team is right. That is like a really cool feeling. And so that's part, I think, of why I, I love talking about these dumplings so much also. That might be a nice place to wrap about just, I was trying something out. It worked. I was wrong. It's lovely. Anything else to close with? Anything I didn't think to ask? Uh, I'll just say that I think that's a great way to think about using up the stuff in your kitchen is just just give it a try. And sometimes you might be wrong if those things might not go together and then... Hopefully you try to eat the evidence and then <laughs> try something new the next time. And odds are that most of the time it'll turn out right and you'll feel really proud of yourself and you'll keep that food out of the trash and you'll eat something delicious. May and Irene, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks so much for having us. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.